today on Against the Grain, Richard Wright is best known for his books Native Son and Black Boy. But he was also, says Joseph Ramsey, a crucial figure in the black radical and anti-capitalist traditions. I'm CS. We'll represent a conversation with the UMass Boston-based scholar about Richard Wright's life, writings, and politics coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Richard Wright's blockbuster novel Native Son appeared in 1940. His autobiography, Black Boy, came out five years later. What many people don't know is that Richard Wright was an active member of the Communist Party USA for about a decade, beginning in 1932. What drew him to radical thought? What turned him against capitalism? Why did he formally break with the party in 1944? And what views did Wright hold toward black nationalism, views that might help progressives and radicals today? Joseph Ramsey teaches English and American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. He's currently at work on a book-length study of what he calls the critical communism of Richard Wright. I came across an article Joe wrote called Sifting the, quote, Stony Soil of Black Marxism, Cedric Robinson, Richard Wright, and Ellipses of the Black Radical Tradition, which appeared in the journal Socialism and Democracy. When Joseph Ramsey and I connected recently, I asked him how important and prominent Richard Wright was as a left thinker and activist in the 1930s and 40s. It would be no exaggeration to say that Richard Wright was the most influential, the most prominent writer on the American scene, on the, the black left and for the left more generally, one of the most prominent, important writers of the 1930s and, and the early to mid-1940s as well. It's really, uh, he was virtually a, a poster figure for the Communist Party of the United States, which at that time was the largest and most influential left-wing organization in the United States. And he was, uh, we should emphasize, not the only black left figure. There were really, it's at this point, it's, it's become clear through scholarship that there was virtually no figure of significance in the black literary movement of the 1930s that didn't have some kind of, at one point, sympathetic relationship with the left and with the Communist Party. But Richard Wright really does stand out as uh, particularly important and uh, particularly prominent. He was born in 1908 near Natchez, Mississippi, and he was born into a poor family. He never received formal schooling past the eighth grade. What can you tell us, what else can you tell us about what he experienced and endured as a child? Yeah, Richard Wright uh, was born the grandson of slaves as you point out, in Natchez, Mississippi, actually in a what had been a thriving kind of cotton plantation area where the wealth of slavery had accumulated, of course, not in the hands of Richard Wright's family. He, he was lived in a, uh, a family with a, a mother who had been a school teacher but was ma- largely worked as a, as a maid during Richard Wright's life before being struck by a stroke in Richard Wright's youth. He, he lived with a virtually paralyzed and... and, and suffering mother that had great influence on his life. His father was an itinerant laborer, left the family at a young age for Richard Wright. Uh, and uh, Richard Wright's family, as a result of the poverty of their family and the white terrorism that, that plagued them directly and indirectly, moved uh, perhaps as many as a dozen times. There's hardly a year of Richard Wright's early years uh, where he, their family is not facing a disruption whether it's because of the fear of violence or just inability to pay the rent or to find work. Uh, so his early years were plagued by both economic insecurity and worry, physical hunger, which he writes about quite painfully and often, um, as well as psychological stress, 
associated with the struggle between his parents and, and between himself and his grandmother, who brought an additional element to the mix, um, and that being a, a very kind of tyrannical, in, at least in Richard Wright's account, form of uh, kind of fundamentalist Christianity, uh, Seventh-day Adventist Protestant uh, Christianity. And so Richard Wright um, really was facing uh, terror and fear and hunger on a physical level, on a spiritual level, on a psychological level in relationship to both poverty and Jim Crow racism. He, in fact, had an uncle who was lynched, um, murdered, apparently for the success he had had in a tavern that he had been running, a business he had been running, and the, the white racist resentment that that stoked up. After almost two decades in the Deep South, Richard Wright moved to Chicago in 1927. What happened to him there, both before and during the Depression, the early years of the Depression? Yes, Richard Wright moved to Chicago with high hopes, like many participants in the Great Migration out of the South, you know, had high hopes for what the city would mean, what Chicago would mean. And, he, and as he opens the second part of his autobiography, he describes how the, the kind of industrial city, the concrete kind of fierceness of the city really just dashed his dreams almost immediately. I mean, 1927 was only two years from the formal onset of what we recognize as the Great Depression. And right and members of his family who he soon brought to Chicago and, and supported through day labor when he could find it, um, you know, they, they suffered the brunt of it. He, he tried to, you know, apply to become a postal worker, but, you know, uh, couldn't pass the exam, didn't weigh enough, was literally starving, you know, tried to pass that exam, couldn't, um, faced such prolonged unemployment that um, he was forced, despite the shame associated with it, to actually show up in so the south side of Chicago for uh, for relief, applying for relief. And he, he describes quite vividly in his autobiography how watching hundreds, dozens of his fellow working class black folks together talking to each other, starting to realize that what had happened to them individually was in fact a collective problem, a political problem that was not of their own making. So he has a class consciousness, a kind of potentially revolutionary class consciousness during his early years in Chicago, which moves him as he describes it from a kind of cynicism where he felt he knew better, he felt he knew that the world was messed up and, and that you know ideology and corruption was ruling the world around him. He starts to see that the, the working class and, and poor folks and black folks are in fact changing, are waking up and starts to believe that a revolutionary transformation might be possible. At the same time as he's having this kind of organic, you know, class awakening, he, right, is becoming engaged with some of these postal workers that he encountered, uh, gets involved in what was known as the John Reed Club. The John Reed Club was uh, a project of the Communist Party in the early 1930s, named after the great radical revolutionary journalist John Reed. Um, and the John Reed Club existed in many cities across the United States, and it was a worker-writer center that consciously brought working-class writers and proletarian-minded, socialist-minded intellectuals and artists together to both work on craft issues and proving their art together and to fight alongside other sectors of the working class for what we might call bread and butter issues, union rights, wages, social benefits, unemployment insurance, as well as funding for the arts. So I would say that you know, Richard Wright encountered both personal class consciousness through his own family's uh, struggle, suffering, and the overcoming of shame and individualism that had kept him separate from thinking politically about possibilities, but also through the deliberate organizing strategies of the Communist Party of that period, and particularly the cultural wing of that Communist Party, which drew right to it both as uh, an interracial space that kind of taught him the possibility of uniting with folks across the color line in a way he had not seen in the South very much anyway, um, and also, it's, it's taking art seriously as, as a revolutionary or potentially revolutionary force. His name is Joseph Ramsey. He teaches English and American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. 
He's written extensively on Richard Wright, and he's currently at work on a book-length study of the critical communism of Richard Wright. How natural was it for somebody like Richard Wright, with his political inclinations and, as you say, his class consciousness, to be drawn specifically to the Communist Party USA? Well, it might surprise folks that have been you know, educated in the 20th century or taken American literature classes in the, or even African-American literature classes and up until recently, but it was actually not that untypical. We can point to dozens of black working class proletarian and even some middle class writers who were drawn into the orbit of the Communist Party, whether they became actual card carrying, as they say, members or not, is sometimes a little more difficult to discern uh, insofar as there was incredible threat and always fear of anti-communism and, and repression, police repression, employer repression, other forms of social stigma. Richard Wright, though, was, was exceptional, if not exceptional in becoming a communist or a communist sympathizer or collaborator, if you will, to use a loaded word. Uh, was exceptional in how prominent his party membership was displayed by him and by others. So it's really, though, I mean, if we, you know, look at figures, even figures that are known as anti-communist writers who would, in fact, be very critical of Wright later in life, such as Ralph Ellison, were themselves very, very close to the Communist Party, in part because of the influence that Wright exerted on them, but for other reasons as well. You can look at Langston Hughes, you can look at Paul Robeson, you can look at Claude McKay, the great black poet and novelist for that matter. Uh, the Communist Party was, was an incredible influence on black left and black radical cultural production at this time. Wright was just perhaps the most prominent of an important broader movement. You write that over the course of the 1930s, Richard Wright grew increasingly active in and around the party. What kinds of things did he do uh, where did his writings appear? Richard Wright engaged with the Communist Party and Communist Party-affiliated organs on several levels. On one level, he was practically involved in the day-to-day -day operation from logistics to more intellectual political discussion and strategy for the Chicago John Reed Club. Right? He was elected soon after uh, becoming involved with the club and demonstrating his understanding of a range of issues from literary issues to questions of race and politics, he was elevated, he was elected by fellow members of the club to leadership. And that, that was not simply a political office, but he has a really moving line in his unpublished memoir pages, things that got cut later, talking about handling everything from getting telegraphs or phone calls from Maxim Gorky, the famous Soviet communist writer, revolutionary writer in Russia, to changing the, like, the toilet paper in the bathroom. So he was involved in literally running that club. Uh, he was also involved in publishing in party and other radical venues, including The New Masses, which was a very important literary magazine, um, and, and other uh, spin-off projects, some local to Chicago, some national. Later in, in New York, after having a kind of fallout with the Chicago branch of the party, uh, and for other reasons as well, moving to New York City, the kind of literary hub, or what he understood to be the, the kind of publishing establishment hub of New York City, he got involved for an extended period as the main reporter and, in fact, the, the, the official editor of the Harlem branch of the Daily Worker, the Communist Party's kind of broader daily paper, not simply a literary venue, but a, a venue for, for news and, uh, you know, kind of broader newspaper, even had a sports page, which was quite popular at the time. And Richard Wright, in fact, covered sports for the New Masses, as well as the Daily Worker, covered a number of Joe Lewis boxing matches, you know, very symbolically loaded sporting events of the 1930s and 1940s, supporting the black boxing champion and also reflecting critically on what his popularity uh, meant for the black masses of the New York area. Uh, he was writing almost an article a day, as many journalists today are, right? At the same time, trying to work on what he saw as his more fundamentally important work, the long-range work of cultural production, the writing of novels, the writing of short stories, works that might not yield political returns in the immediate, in the immediate future, but which Wright saw as ultimately more important, or at least 
fundamentally important to the long range building of a, of a real left radical counterculture. I mean, I actually think it's, it, it's important to note that writes, I think best in some ways, best creative writing comes out of the same period when he's also very involved in day-to-day -day work. One might expect Richard Wright, steeped as he was in everyday black life and um, black culture, to be attracted to black nationalism rather than an organ, a party like the Communist Party uh, that stressed class, that stressed a class struggle. Um, and in 1937, Wright wrote an essay called Blueprint for Negro Writing. What did Wright express in that essay about uh, black nationalism and whether it was desirable, whether it uh, made sense as a way of thinking for the black masses? Well, I think the first thing to point out, perhaps contrary to many people's understanding of communism or of the Communist Party of the United States, um, it's important to point out that the Communist Party in the 1930s was taking the struggle for black self-determination, the national question as they understood it, right, very seriously. And in fact, during the 1930s, when Wright began to become interested and involved in the party, they were still circulating uh, a theory a position known as the Black Belt Thesis, right, which actually upheld the right of southern states or southern regions, which were majority African-American, to declare their independence if they wanted, right, the right for a plebiscite in those areas. Uh, so they were very sympathetic to the black struggle, uh, the national struggle, the national question, as it was often understood, as an end in itself, as well as a force contributing to a broader working class socialism. They advocated on some level, at least in some theoretical organs of the party, I mean, how much this was applied beyond uh, kind of official position papers is debatable and complex. Um, but they both argued for full integration and equal acceptance in, in the unions and social organizations of the North and argued that black folks should have the right to self-determination as a, an oppressed nation in the South. So, so for Richard Wright and other black communists or, or radicals or leftists to be attracted to the Communist Party didn't necessarily preclude or didn't have to be uh, despite an interest in black nationalism. It actually could be, and in some cases was perhaps, because this was one of the only visible multiracial organizations that, that actually had significant critical mass and, and affirmed the black liberation struggle as a part of a broader socialist struggle. And in fact, it's worth pointing out, it was in fact Lenin and the Soviets' influence to some degree on the Communist Party that actually really forced many of the early American Communist Party members to take the what they called the Negro question more seriously. Actually, Claude McKay, an important black writer, plays an important role in a conference in the Soviet Union to determine that line. But to, to loop back to Wright, this is not to say that Wright was just one of many uh, folks attracted to the attempt to fuse class struggle with a more black nationalist or a black uh, liberation perspective within the Communist Party. I mean, as, to come back to that essay you mentioned, the, the blueprint for uh, Negro writing written and published in 1937, when Wright was only 29 years old, it's quite an audacious uh, essay in that, in that respect. But Wright has a, a really important argument in that piece. And, and it's one that I think we that still holds up in some ways today even. And that is to say, so long as there is a white supremacist society, right, or white supremacist and racist inequalities exist, of course, they existed in different ways in 1937 than they do today. So we need to think that think about that. But, but as long as there was white supremacy, and white chauvinism to use some of the language of the time, there would be a, a black nationalist kind of response to that. Right. Not only as a not only white supremacy in the present, but the, the history of white supremacy and the ways in which black writers and black people had been systematically excluded from major institutions, right, and forced to form their own separate but unequal institutions in many respects. To that degree, what you know was to use the parlance of the time, Negro nationalism and nationalistic responses and reactions were natural, if you will, or unavoidable to be expected from the black community. And so Wright would say in that essay, 
and I paraphrase here, but essentially no serious black writer, let alone a radical or revolutionary one, can think that they're going to reach the black masses without speaking to them through the terms and the forms that they have been socialized into, even as these terms he understood could be had been sometimes warped and had the potential to warp people's understandings, right? That is to say, the oppressed kind of marginalization of people had a way of of deforming or, or or doing damage to the cultural life that they were able to lead. So so Wright was on the one hand insisting that a respect for Nash organic kind of folk nationalism in, in the black church, though Wright was very much an atheist, in, in folk music and folk culture. This had to be primary, but at the same time it could not just be affirmed as it was, it was both kind of a necessary resistant reaction to an oppressive racist capitalist society, but it was also shaped and in some ways deformed or distorted by that society. And therefore, there needed to be a critical engagement with, with both what we might say the so quote unquote class reductionists of Wright's own day who would claim that, you know, any kind of black nationalism is simply reactionary, any kind of race first approach, whether from intellectuals or from masses on the street, is just, you know, uh, you know, a reactionary ideology. He criticized, he, he had, a, he waged a struggle against those folks, but he also waged a struggle against, let's say, the, you know, the Garveyites, those coming out of the United Negro Improvement Association or other kind of black nationalist trends, which he saw could go in very negative directions, including and up to, though this was not typical, up to a kind of nationalist affirmation of Japanese imperialism, which, you know, unfortunately was a reality that, that existed at the time. So Wright had a complex relationship to nationalism, to black nationalism, to the nationalism of oppressed peoples, recognizing its necessity, but also realizing that it, in order to really kind of realize its goal of freedom or liberation, it needed to find ways to transcend itself, which is to say, to realize that especially for a, a national minority in a, in a place like the United States, one could not win even national respect, if you want to think in those terms, without allies from the so-called white community, without white working class comrades, right? He saw real potential power in that nationalist force, but, but without a critical class conscious strategic perspective, without a you know, without without a lot of cultural and organ, organizing work, he, he saw that, that that nationalism could in fact reinforce the problems that had created it rather than escaping those problems or transcending those problems. Joseph Ramsey joins us on Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. He teaches English and American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. He's written widely on the thinker and writer Richard Wright, author of books like Black Boy and Native Son. And he is currently working on a book-length study of the critical communism of Richard Wright. So Richard Wright wrote that black nationalism's ultimate aims are unrealizable within the framework of capitalist America. What did he see capitalism doing to the ability of blacks and of other working people to find meaning, to pursue a meaningful existence? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think it is one that speaks to the enduring importance of Wright. Wright saw, obviously, the condition of black folks, the condition of working class people, as varying from region to region, place to place, time to time. I think it's in, it's in a work like Native Son, his breakthrough novel, the first, arguably, one of, but perhaps the first black bestseller in 1940, it's in this work and in his own commentary on that work uh, in, a, in a lengthy essay, How Bigger Was Born, Bigger Thomas being the prime character of Native Son. It's in a book like this that I think you see Wright really trying to think through and to theorize all the different forms of alienation and oppression and marginalization that an oppressed person has to deal with in a modern society, uh, in a modern industrialist society like the United States of that time. On the one hand, a bigger Thomas can be radically excluded, right? Forced to live in the, on the south side in a cramped ghetto apartment with, you know, the book opens famously with a rat attacking the family and a, a bloody fight between bigger and the rat, right? I mean, in terms of housing, in terms of employment opportunities, I mean, marginalized, oppressed, his father 
who we never meet in the novel has been lynched. We learn much later in, in the book. I mean, he's excluded, oppressed in so many ways. On the other hand, in Chicago, whether it's looking up at the sky writing of, of commercial planes in the sky, or it's looking at the advertising posters on, on the subway walls, or it's you know walking by stores which he's not allowed to go into, the, the glittering uh, spectacle of commodity capitalism is is very much foregrounded in, in, in his face, right? So, so you have this paradox, I think, right, was, was saw as, as a kind of biggerization of the American working class, not only black people, which is this simultaneous kind of feeling of acute exclusion, alienation, powerlessness, and the, the dangling of the spectacle of capitalism, both in the sense of commodity, the, the kind of commodity fetishism and, and the fantasies of being uh, satisfied through commodities, but also the kind of celebrity culture, the kind of fantasy, I mean, something I associate with, you know, which would write himself associated with the rise of fascism, right? The idea that people who are so radically disempowered in their own lives could come to identify with an authoritarian figure who may in fact be their oppressor as well, but in fact, at least it shows that you can quote unquote do something. So, so he was very aware of the way in which the kind of proletarianization and the, the rendering precarious of of black life, but of working class life, when combined with the cultural spectacle of, of what we might now call late capitalism, or certainly of kind of consumer, the, the growing kind of consumer culture that was only getting going kind of in, in the early to mid 20th century, um, that this could create a dynamic explosive force that could go in any number of directions, which in as he pointed, like the biggers of the world could go to communism, which at that time was a positive term still for right, um, or it could go to fascism. And, and he you know famously pointed out that that he learned after coming to Chicago that the biggers of the world were not only black that they could be white too and that there were that they were millions of them and they were everywhere now and everywhere doesn't mean literally everyone it's important not to see he's not saying that bigger Thomas represents you know who of course kills two women uh, one deliberately and one accidentally and, and, and is certainly you know a very at times a violent figure with all kinds of problematic attitudes towards women in particular. It's not, Wright was not saying this is the typical black working class figure, but he was saying this tendency, the tendency towards, and I think Wright here is kind of trying to fuse a kind of Marxian and, and kind of Freudian perspective or psychoanalytic perspective, right? That the kind of castration, if you will, right? The symbolic castration of being a poor black man in America could in fact lead people to, to like long to fill that, that void with any number of things. And, and the struggle of the future, Wright saw, was like, well, what would fill that void? Right? People are being torn away from any sense of security, stability. You don't have to romanticize feudalism or slavery or, or, or you know, pre-modern cultures to, to recognize capitalism as a way of maybe particularly isolating and alienating people from themselves and from others. So the question was, what was going to fill that void? For Wright, it wasn't going to be the black church anymore. It wasn't going to be religion. He saw in some ways, as very modern in this way, um, he saw that art could and should play a role in kind of filling that void. And not, not filling it, but and in some sense, art bridged to politics. Um, and, he, and he saw that as acutely necessary because he said, if we don't win that battle, then, you know, the fascists will, right? Or some kind of crude, crude, you know, I, I see it as kind of prophetic in terms of the appeal of a Trump-like figure, right? Who's just, one of, seems to be some, one of his main appeals, at least to, to a, a certain layer of the masses of people, is just like, I'll get stuff done. Who cares if it's the right thing, you know, or if it's going to kill us all? At least I show that you, through me, can act. And, of course, a classic appeal of a fascist leader, uh, the kind of cult of action. And so Wright was, I think, uh, in some ways prophetic in this regard and, and can be read as a, an early theorist of, of fascism in America. Native Son, his blockbuster novel, comes out in 1940. Just a few years later, in 1944, Wright left very publicly. He broke with the Communist Party USA. And, and this might have, his disenchantment with the party might have uh, dated, uh, you know, maybe a couple of years before 1944, before his announcement. And um, a lot has been written and speculated about why he left the Communist Party. What is your understanding of, of why he no longer wanted to continue his involvement? So this is a very important question. 
Wright became very critical privately and, and later publicly of the Communist Party, particularly during the period we now know as World War II, right? After the United States entry into the global conflict of World War II. And in fact, even earlier than that, after the, the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union and the Communist Party's line within the United States and elsewhere changed from calling the the war of you know the, the Nazis against England and so forth as an imperialist war to calling it a people's war. Richard Wright had actually penned a public article say, arguing for why you know Negroes, to use the terminology of the time, would not and should not support the war the war effort or those pushing for war for the United States entry into the war, he literally just weeks before, I think it was like two weeks before the Communist Party line changes, was still arguing for a, a non-interventionist position. Um, after the party changes the line, and, and for good reason, we might say, right? In fact, supported on one level, the party's change to a win the war position but what he became increasingly critical of was the way in which that focus on global anti-fascism pushed domestic class and race struggles to the back burner so the communist party takes a variety of positions you know against for instance strikes in war industries right once you once anti-fascism becomes the priority a strike in a arms manufacturing plant becomes kind of a counter-revolutionary or right, a counter-socialist thing to do. So Wright and a figure like Ralph Ellison, and they were in fact in correspondence during the time, and so their correspondence is a, is a great you know resource for, for unpacking what they were thinking in, in, you know, in 1942 and 1943. Um, while they still identify as like small C communists and at times use the, the capital C, there's a growing concern that the priorities of international politics are leading the American party uh, in particular to kind of boomerang away from some of its core commitments that in fact had attracted people like Wright and Ellison to it in the first place. Along with that, there were additional kind of, you might say, more uh, ongoing tensions. There was always the tension in Wright between the party's expectation uh, that he engage in more like short-term um, activism, right, you know, writing articles for the Harlem, you know, branch of the Daily Worker, organizing literary conferences or, or, or conferences, we should say, with a specific kind of political agenda. You know, Wright felt like the, the organizing work, as, as important as it was, was, was draining money, uh, to, well, probably money too, but uh, time from his writing efforts. Uh, you know, also, also um, I mean, Wright also had particular problems with particular individuals, right? I think it's, it's easy, like, looking back on a political fallout, a breakup, if you will, and to say, oh, it, it was fated to be, you know, and people will break out, you know, say, oh, because the party was Stalinist, capital S, you know, that, that no free thinking radical could stay in such an organization. Well, actually, Wright continued to uphold the thought of Stalin on the national question, at least, if not on others, even after he left the party, which is kind of, you know, shows how complicated the situation was, you know, but but I'm one of my, you know, interests is that what are the things that were not fated? That were not deterministic here and you know so wright had particular conflicts with for instance one of the the head figures of the chicago communist party harry haywood and had real conflicts which almost led him to leave the party for good but only ended up leaving the chicago branch of it and then kind of realigned when he moved to new york so so there were particular kind of conflicts political conflicts personality conflicts internal to the, to the party and i think all these things kind of came to a head in a really nasty way, ultimately, uh, in 1944, when Wright breaks publicly from the party. And I think, you know, there's a real tragedy, not only in, in that he left the party, uh, which, you know, perhaps he had good reasons to, but that the, the relationship there deteriorated to such a point where they become kind of such bitter enemies, as, as many ex-comrades did, I suppose, and, and perhaps as many ex-lovers do. I mean, after a, after a passionate 10-year relationship when things go sour publicly, it, it perhaps is difficult for uh, for people to kind of remember what it was that brought them together in the first place, and and to remember that perhaps there was still good reason for mutual respect, even if people didn't see eye to eye on this or that question. Uh, at least for me, you know, Wright is a heroic figure, but there's also a tragedy here, and you know, and he plays his own role, as as do many of his former comrades in escalating those conflicts to the point where productive communication really is is no longer possible. Uh, let's talk more about Richard Wright's internationalism. Uh, you write that his focus 
moved over the course of his life from communism to revolutionary internationalist humanism. Does his internationalism derive from his participation in a party and a movement that stressed anti-capitalism and therefore stressed global anti-capitalism? Wright wrote of the decolonization movements which he saw unfolding across the the world in the 1950s in Africa and Asia um, as the most important political development of the time and perhaps of his entire life. He did you know, see in some ways, you know, the quote unquote colored races and nations of the world kind of standing up. He traveled to what was known as the Gold Coast there, what would become Ghana, and met with revolutionary leaders and toured the, you know, all kinds of sites across that country, observing the revolutionary, the decolonization process as it was occurring. He also went to cover the Bandung Conference in Indonesia, which is understood as kind of the birthplace of the third world movement, right? Then thought of as a positive turn, right? A third camp, neither pro-imperialist, uh, pro-capitalist, nor uh, simply kind of uh, in the Soviet camp. And, and Wright wrote glowingly, um, if at times skeptically, of, of these revolutionary uh, movements. Uh, in fact, he did not spare his criticisms, but he saw the overall kind of waking up of the colonized peoples of the earth as, as incredibly, incredibly important. And in fact, is, is changing history right before his eyes. Unfortunately, as he dies in 1960 at the, at the young age of 52, he does not live uh, to witness nor to be uh, an active participant in many of the the kind of culminating moments of decolonization, as well as in the, the United States equivalent of that, right? The civil rights movement, the later phases of the civil rights movement from 1960 on. He does not live as certain other intellectuals, like such as James Baldwin, were able to kind of be an active force in that moment. But, but Wright was uh, absolutely in contact with class conscious or, you know, anti-capitalist as well as anti-imperialist intellectuals in Paris. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Joseph G. Ramsey joins me. He's a scholar, activist, and organizer based at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. He hosts and co-produces the podcast Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists. And we are talking about an article he wrote. Well, we're talking about a number of things, but uh, focusing in part on an article he wrote that appeared in the journal Socialism and Democracy. It's called Sifting the, quote, stony soil of black Marxism, Cedric Robinson, Richard Wright, and ellipses of the black radical tradition. So you referred to Richard Wright's emphasis, his focus, uh, his stress, the stress he placed on a multiracial organizing, a multiracial working class movement. And... Multiracial friendships, uh, you've, you've written about this uh, separately, uh, were an important um, subject of, of his writing, including in A Black Boy, which is his memoir slash autobiography. It was published in 1945. Uh, there's a lot to say about this. I know you've written quite a bit about this, but uh, what does he write about and actually, I'm thinking specifically about your analysis of drafts of Black Boy, unpublished drafts of this autobiography, stuff that was actually deleted and did not appear in the published version. What have you found about Richard Wright's understanding of multiracialism and its potential that may not have come through in the published version of Black Boy, uh, which also, I guess, is in two parts. So it's Black Boy, American Hunger. Yes, I mean, thank you so much for asking this question. Um, I mean, it has puzzled scholars for a generation or two now, how Richard Wright, who lived in some ways a very, very uh, unusually interracial life from, from his marriages to his close friendships to the literature that he at least has written about as having influenced him uh, to the neighborhoods he lived in, both in the United States and abroad after leaving the South. Uh, and yet in his published fiction, including his memoir, his two-part memoir, Black Boy, American Hunger, there are very few depictions of anything that are even approaching an interracial friendship 
we do have a few moments where there seems to be a moment of, of a glimmer of human recognition or at least potential human recognition between Wright and another white person. There's a there's an unnamed Irishman who loans him his library card so that Wright can illegally take books out of the library when he's still in the South. There's another, you know, a, a Jewish clerk owner for whom, for whom he's worked who seems to be wanting to express sympathy and give the benefit of the of, of doubt to the young Richard Wright, but Wright himself is depicted as not being able to kind of accept that. He's so suspicious of this man, even though he thinks he's on, might be on the level, he still kind of feels the need to put on a face and, and defensively kind of lie and maneuver to avoid a kind of frank confrontation which could end up hurting him. Uh, so, so it's been a puzzle for a long time. Where are, you know, why aren't there, you know, white friendships in Richard Wright, despite having had any number of them? And his correspondence testifies to how many white radicals and, and white working class folks he was in contact with. Well, um, in the unpublished drafts of Black Boy, which were actually written under the fascinating title Black Confession, right? We're talking about a handwritten draft, two, at least two typed drafts under that title before he changes it to American Hunger, and then later it gets chopped up, and part of it's published as Black Boy, and part of it is held back until after Wright's death. But in the early version of the later part of the autobiography, we see a, a few fascinating moments. There's, it's still not a lot numerically, but we have some fascinating accountings of the importance that interracial friendship had for Richard Wright, both when he was still in the South particularly after having experienced white terrorism at work, where he is driven off the job, potentially threatened with death for having asked to learn more on the job, right? Confronted by two white coworkers who basically put him in a catch-22 he cannot get out of and ultimately drive him off the job. He has a very important uh, encounter with a couple of kind of Southern white liberals, who, one of whom seems to be kind of knowledgeable or at least uh, conversant with uh, psychoanalysis. And and Wright doesn't go under therapy, but he does have a conversation with this with this sympathetic kind of white liberal family, ironically called the the walls, the the white walls, and yet there's a crack in the wall, right? And, and it's through this conversation with this sympathetic, humanizing um, white family that he, at least as he as he narrates it in the early drafts, he, that he's able to kind of work through and process the fact that the racists that attacked him did not represent all white people, right? Even if they represented a powerful and perhaps dominant trend within the white society of a state like Mississippi, or even later when he's in, in Tennessee and in other, in other, in other states in the South. Uh, so you see even, and these are not radical, these are not even communists, these are kind of like liberals, right? Thoughtful people who at least seem to be treating him with some sympathy. Uh, Ironically, I mean, Wright depicts the importance of this interracial friendship, not only in itself, like, okay, this is a nice surprise. This is, this is, you know, this is support where I didn't think it would be. But he also points out that it, there were things he was willing to tell this kind of these white relative strangers, right, that were, you know, had been his actual former employer at one point. Rather than some of the members of his own family uh, or the black uh, boys that he was friends with at school, in, in fact, he, he writes about how he felt that he would be considered a fool if he went to uh, his black schoolmates or black family members and told them what happened to him at work because other people, he felt at least, would have told him he was a fool for having asked to learn more at work in the first place. Didn't he, as a black boy in the South, know his place? This is interesting, Joe, because... What he's saying is, uh, at least in the way I read it, or the way I understand your analysis, is he's saying that he he felt he would get less sympathy from fellow blacks than from uh, white liberals, or at least this couple. Yeah, that is, in in a way, the implication of this this excised chapter or section of of the autobiography. Uh, I should also point out, though, that it wasn't just this white liberal couple. I mean, there's also a very fascinating, in my view, uh, and it deserves a more extended treatment. So maybe I won't go into it quite yet unless 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 we want to go there. But he also talks about his important friendships with white radicals, including the the important Chicago writer Nelson Algren. And he, he does write about, in fact, the resistance to 
his interracial comrades and friendship that sometimes he experienced from more black nationalists, particularly, and he, he flags them as middle-class college students, right, who, who invite him to give a talk. And when he shows up with his interracial communist entourage, he has to kind of fight to get the white comrades in the door, both because the, the kind of more nationalist leading middle-class folks don't want their oppressor or who they perceive to be their racial oppressor in the room, but also because, as Wright points out, he doesn't leave the white comrades off the hook either. They act like frightened children in the in the face of this kind of situation, right? So, so Wright, Wright, in fact, does struggle and get his white friends, including Nelson Algren and some other important writers or people who would become important writers uh, of the period, and he gets them into the hall with the students. And what ensues is a kind of a... A really interesting, fascinating crisis as Wright reads one of his important stories, ultimately about the lynching of black youth, uh, for black youth who go and, and, and swim in a quote unquote white man's watering hole on his property and, and pay the ultimate price. Uh, Wright describes how the, his black hosts show horror at listening to him describe the, the kind of the foul boys humor, the lewd sexual jokes, the fart jokes that these that these black folk you know, folk, uh, as he describes them as kind of folk culture embedded working class black youth, he sees his black host kind of kind of scowl and turn on him. And, and he, he interprets it as both a resistance to the class, the rough edges of working class life that he was presenting, which kind of some of these black middle class folks were kind of trying to distance themselves from, but also, of course, the interracial gaze, G-A-Z-E, right? That, that there's, he describes what he sees as the, the trauma and, or the, he doesn't use that word, but the, the, uh, the real horror of, of these black middle-class folks feeling like white folks are being kind of shown the dirty laundry of the race. And I think what's interesting is that Wright himself, you know, at least tried, at least in the, you know, in many places to not bow to that pressure, right? To, to say that, you know, we can't allow the fear of what white folks are going to say to keep us, you know, as he would say, you know, as black writers from depicting the honest truths and the cutting edge of, of where the black struggle is at in the South and elsewhere. Um, and, and the John Reed Club would be the other big emphasis. And that is in the published version, even if it's there not as much personalization of the comrades that he meets there. But the um, John Reed Club, he talks about these. I mean, he uses very strong language. He said, these were the first meaningful relationships of my life. Right. The first meaningful, like prolonged relations of his life. And he's talking about a, a multiracial group of writers, artists, intellectuals and activists. So I think um, it was, you know, it was crucial to write to realize that black folks and, and people like him weren't uh, weren't alone. And so so realizing there were cracks in the white wall, so to speak, was actually the catalyst for a kind of realization of a black Marxist revolutionary perspective. It was not a substitute for it. How might Richard Wright's critique of black nationalism be applied to anti-racist movements and discourses today? Yeah, that's a great question and, and a crucial question, right? I mean, I think that Richard Wright's 1937 essay still warrants reading today. You know, Blueprint for Negro Writing, I think makes a crucial argument and I think could be usefully used as a, a test case for uh, anti-racist, uh, different currents of what we call the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, Wright argues in a way that there's going to need to be, as long as there's racist society, racist inequities, white supremacy, there's going to need to be, or there is going to be a nationalist response to that, a, a black nationalist kind of rejection or resistance to that but the question is does that resistance develop a historical understanding of uh, and teach people to understand the origins of the oppression that they are facing in a truly material and historical way as opposed to just like reifying and, and turning race into the, the be-all end-all concept that explains the world right right thought we need you know needed to move through that the reality of that racial oppression to understand what were the real roots of that oppression and, and, and tying that to down to a capitalist imperialist system that had produced a lot of these racial categories for its own ends. He also understood that the nationalist tendency had to realize strategically that it must reach out 
and make possible alliances and comradeships across so-called racial lines, across so-called international lines, right? So a Black Lives Matter movement needs to be uh, very, you know, need to be consciously anti-imperialist, right? An anti-racist movement needs to be as concerned about what's happening in Haiti as what's happening in Philadelphia. Uh, he also understood the dangers of painting a picture that was kind of exceptionalist, that makes black people feel like they're totally alone, right? That they don't have anything in common with other sectors of the population, right? He, he saw that that could, that could lead to a kind of fatalism and a kind of pessimism and a kind of cynicism. So I think that we could do worse than, uh, obviously it's, it's a time-bound document and there are plenty of rhetorical excesses in right. He was not above taking out his differences on his contemporaries in ways that might not have been always well chosen. But I think there are choice passages of that essay, which we should reread today. And I think it would be a great thing if, if, organizers and activists sat down and, and read essays like that 1937 text and asked, you know, well, how does the work that we're doing or, or that other groups are doing, how do we map the terrain of anti-racist activity in terms of the, the kind of test that Wright lays out? Is this an anti-racism that transcends simply the struggle against racism? Is this a black nationalism or a, a black radicalism? that is setting out to transcend itself, or is it a theory and a practice that's going to reproduce the terms of its own marginalization? And in fact, perhaps even reinforce the enemy rather than outflanking it and defeating it. Joe Ramsey, he teaches English and American studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. He hosts and co-produces the podcast Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists. We've put a link to that podcast as well as to his new politics article, Rest in Power, Richard Wright. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for joining me today, and, and thanks so much for your work. Thank you, CS. This has really been a pleasure. And that program first aired last November 10th. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning. And we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.